My guest today is the wonderfully charismatic Dr. Srini Pillay. He's a Harvard-trained psychiatrist, brain researcher, author, coach, world-renowned key speaker, and CEO of Neuro Business Group. Srini blends neuroscience and spirituality to help people live a life of possibility and goal mastery. And he also is a true expert in helping people overcome anxiety and fear. How much does our unconscious brain actually get in the way? What fear is the backseat driver to our actions and behaviors? And how do we overcome it? Today, Srini and I discuss the unconscious brain and the impact it has on our everyday life, our decisions, our interactions, and also our relationships, just based on our memory and experiences. It is a boundless source of possibility and creativity, but it can also be a giant obstacle in going after what we want. Srini helps us find the tools to step out of our comfort zone and negative thought processes to live a life of full potential. We also explore Srini's new book, which is called Tinkle Dabble Doodle Try, where he encourages us to take time out of our day to actually unfocus to help us reach higher productivity and allow space for creativity. I absolutely loved my conversation with Srini and I also felt very up for life after speaking to him. This is something that can happen in sound meditation and whatever. Uh, you know, we only get proved in maths, logic, baking and whiskey. Uh, I'm very, very <laughs> hopeful about the future. The big question for me is just how are we going to get it? just take myself out of this world of reality and architect my life from possibility. What might that possibility be? This is the Anitja Podcast with Elizabeth Broderick. Hey, welcome. We have Dr. Srini Pillay here. Thank you so much for joining me today. I've been so excited to talk to you. Thanks very much for having me, Elizabeth. My best friend actually saw you uh, speaking at Oxford University and thought Elizabeth will absolutely love you and your books and your work. So she got me a signed copy of your book and, you know, she was right because here we are. That's great. Well, you know, serendipity has is sort of a, is a wonderful thing. I think uh, sometimes it seems like when we look externally, we think, well, your friend connected you with me. Uh, and But there's also another possibility, right, which is that our consciousness, that there's one global consciousness and that when we tune into that frequency, we come into one another's spheres. It's a little uh, questionable, but not even that questionable. There was actually a study uh, recently, well, an opinion on the basis of a lot of research that was offered by a physicist who said that the entire universe may operate like a neural network. So I'm, um, I'm more and more open to these kinds of connections, uh, and I always feel like the more open we are to them, uh, the more we'll be able to derive from the frequency of our connection. I completely agree, and I think it's best to have an open mind when we're exploring the possibilities of human consciousness because I feel like it's an, a never-ending exciting kind of theme park of of and maze at the same time so what i want to talk to you at the beginning today is about the unconscious brain so before i read your book i had never actually really felt the need to dig deeper into the unconscious because i didn't really fully understand how it could have kind of a backseat influence on my behavior without me even realizing I think we aren't encouraged to question enough, 
you know, what goes on in our brain. We identify with our thoughts. We believe we are our thoughts. And there's actually a lot more going on with that. So it would be great actually just to start off talking about how the unconscious can influence our behavior. And it's your book that was around fear that made me really realize actually I need to kind of do some work on my unconscious fears and see what's holding me back in my life. Sure. So that's, I mean, it's a big question. I think um, in terms of the unconscious, so we have a hundred billion neurons and a hundred trillion connections. So that's a lot of neuronal activity going on at any one point in time. And in both of my books, both in Life Unlocked and in Tinker Dabble Doodle Try, which in the UK is called Think Less, Learn More, um, I, I talk about the fact that we have a, you know, the brain only occupies 2% of the body's volume. So it's a very small percent, but it's pretty greedy for energy because it, it act, the default mode network, which largely operates unconsciously, it's when we're not focused, when we're not strategic, it uses up 20% of the body's energy. And in fact, the rational brain just needs another 5%. So a lot of the energy that we consume on a day-to-day basis is used by this unconscious network. Now, when it comes to you know, how influential is the unconscious? I think a lot of people would say that the brain is operating unconsciously, you know, 80 to 90% of what we're doing is probably in that unconscious realm. I don't think we've landed for sure on what that exact figure is. But most people would agree that things can occur outside of awareness. And when it comes to fear, this is something I have studied um, you know, over time. And, and one of the things we know about fear is that is that fear can impact the brain even when we're not aware, like consciously, that it's there. And it can really disrupt not just the way we're feeling, but the way we're thinking as well. So when I was in a brain imaging lab, I worked in a lab for 17 years, sort of working with people, trying to see what was going on and how their emotions correlated with what was going on in their brains. Now, if I showed you a fearful face or a frightening face for zero to 10 milliseconds, nothing would happen nothing would happen at all because it's not enough time for your brain to register anything. If I showed you that same image of fear or, or threat for 10 to 30 milliseconds, what would happen is, and if I asked you what you saw, you would say nothing because 10 to 30 milliseconds is not long enough for the conscious brain to realize that you actually saw something. But if I looked in your brain, I would actually see that the brain's fear center, the amygdala, is activated. So even though you would think nothing happened, unconsciously, the sphere is registered in your brain and it activates the amygdala. And you know, 30 to 150 milliseconds is how much time you need for the sphere to actually register consciously. So for a lot of people at this time, for example, there are a lot of fears that are conscious and there are a lot of things that are happening unconsciously. And what we know is that even when you are, even when you say, I'm not really afraid of anything, I'm fine, the, the reality is that your brain is picking this up and, and the fear center in your brain, which is the amygdala, which really processes all emotions, not just fear, is connected to the thinking brain. And as a result of that, when you have earthquakes going on in this amygdala, you get these aftershocks in the thinking brain. And this disturbs your ability to attend your ability to innovate, your ability to assess risks, and you start to feel like the world is closing in on you, and this makes you even more anxious, and you get this vicious cycle where your anxiety compromises your thinking, 
which makes you even more anxious. And then that compromises your thinking again, and you get the cycle. So one of the things that I think is important for most people is to firstly learn how to manage conscious and unconscious fear, and then to delve into what else may be going on unconsciously that may actually help you at this point in time. When we have an unconscious fear, okay, I'm trying to explain this in a way that makes sense. So we have our conscious mind and our unconscious brain, and we have experienced, you know, things in our life, whether it be trauma or even, you know, just memories that we have that we have suppressed. Does our un- unconscious brain want that information to come to the forefront in our conscious mind and it's our conscious mind that's not letting it so it's kind of like this battle to protect us from feeling any pain from feeling any anxiety and just kind of surviving in our comfort zone so there are a couple of different reasons one is that information first registers in the unconscious and then it takes a longer time to get to the conscious brain so in that sense it's not the unconscious suppressing or repressing information But there are lots of instances, even demonstrated by brain scans, when we know that the unconscious brain can suppress or repress information, because if we actually thought about these things consciously, it would be disturbing. So for example, fear of death. You know, if you ask most people, most people are not that freaked out by the thought of it. Nobody likes it if they're enjoying their lives, but they're not that freaked out about it on a day-to-day basis. But can you imagine if that information was in your conscious brain every day? Hi, good morning. You're going to die. Good morning. <laughs> you know, it's sort of, I always say to people that it's sort of impossible not to have fear of death. Because imagine if I said to you, hey, I've got a great idea. I would like, to, I would like you to come with me in a ride, uh, on a ride in my new Ferrari. And we're gonna, what we're going to do is we're going to stop by like the five-star hotels along the way. It's going to be the most amazing ride. And then at the end of that, there's a cliff and we're going to be just flying over the cliff and then we'll die. You'll be like, no, I, I don't want to. I don't care if you're in a Ferrari. I, I don't care what, what hotels. I'm, I'm not going to do that. But that's exactly what we've signed up to do in life. Like in life, we've actually signed up to life. And the first thing that happens is that you have a death sentence, even though you've done nothing wrong. Like that's your destination. That's a very frightening thought. So, of course, you're unconscious is not going to want you to every day get up and say, hi, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm going to die and you're going to die. Or, uh, you know, like you're in the middle of a fight with someone at home and you're like, you know, a lover. And you're like, well, you know, the thing is, I could really argue with you forever or I'm going to die and you're going to die. So why even waste our time? If you did this every day, it would be very, very anxiety provoking. So I think the unconscious brain does have an agenda The problem is that many studies recently are showing that too much suppression and repression of information can actually be not just detrimental to your feeling state by causing anxiety, but it can actually also affect your body as well. It can affect your blood pressure negatively. It's even correlated with with greater uh, degrees of cancer and also death. So and part of that, it might sound like so like, oh, come on, like how what does that have to do with anything? Well, if you think about it, your brain is communicating with every organ in your body constantly, the whole day. Your heart is connected to your brain. Your heart is, your brain is giving instructions to your hands to move. It's giving instructions to your legs, your adrenal glands, your kidneys. Your brain is connected to everything. So if you've got the this, this situation in your brain where everyone's like, okay, you know, turn, you know, 
just lock the gates, don't let any information out, there's going to be this sense of tension, and this activation has to go somewhere. So part of what we think about is that there are forms of suppression and repression that can be very helpful. And when they're, and they're helpful because you don't want to remember negative things on a day-to-day basis all the time. But there are forms of suppression and repression that are not helpful that can lead to not just emotional distress, but physical distress as well. So would that be, for example, self-sabotage? When you have examples that, you know, whether you're in a relationship or things are going good in your life and maybe past experiences that you have, you actually create a disaster in front of you for, you know, unknown reasons. Yes. In fact, one of the leading theories on worry right now is the contrast avoidance theory. And what this theory teaches us is that after studying people who worry a lot for a long time, researchers have have concluded that in life you get peak experiences, right? You know, a great day a baby, a lot of money, and you get these trough experiences, which are like deaths in your family or breakup, things that are distressing. People who worry do not want to experience the fall from peak to trough. They want to worry, so they keep themselves right in the middle. So if something <laughs> so if something negative happens, they're like, oh, you know, it's not the fall's not that much. Which that's why when you walk in, when I ran an anxiety center, at Harvard's McLean Hospital, telling people, the last thing you should tell someone who's anxious or worried is don't worry because they'll think you're crazy. It's like telling, it's like telling them, go stand at the top of the cliff and look down. You, you recognize that as much as the worry is torturing them, it's also protecting them from this big fall from happiness to pain. And what I say to people is, you know, this is, there's a lot, there's a precedent to this idea that's contained in some of the writings of Sigmund Freud around a a construct that he called repetition compulsion. And the way that this construct arose was he was watching a bunch of babies, as you can imagine how serious experimental psychologists are. He was a neurologist, but and they were watching babies playing, and they were like, okay, this is very weird behavior. Like the baby in the cart is taking their own possession and throwing it out of the cart. So they're like, it might seem not strange, but can you imagine going home and saying, oh, here's my table, I'm just throwing it out. Everything I own, I'm just throwing out. It's kind of a strange behavior. But then they say, then the baby starts crying, and they're like, okay, this is even more ridiculous. Firstly, you threw it out. Now you're crying. Like, you're surprised that it went somewhere after you threw it out. And then the mother brings the toys back, and then the baby gets really happy, and then the mother turns around, and the baby throws the toys out again. They're like, okay, what is going on here? And they came up with a rather startling conclusion, which is that, From a very young age, we are programmed to master disappointment rather than to seek fulfillment. That we practice mastering disappointment. So we often, you know, we we unconsciously fall for these situations that are negative in life. So we can say we're very good at the fact that life sucks. That if it's that when life's horrible, we're like, I'm so good at life being horrible, I don't care if life's horrible. But what this does is it prevents you, just as it prevents the warrior. It prevents you from seeking fulfillment. So one practical thing I often say to people is, if you don't deliberately seek fulfillment, your brain will be quite happy to take you on this joyride of worry, you know, which is, which is like half protection, but also half torture. And we need to break out of that to push ourselves. So doesn't yeah. the amygdala process fear? over joyous emotions. Why is that? Is that just because fear is more overwhelming? 
Well, it processes all emotions, but in, in many instances, uh, evolutionary uh, biologists and psychologists believe that fear jumps to the front of the line because the amygdala was there to protect us. The, the, the problem is, we, you know, although the world can be dangerous from time to time, they aren't like lions and tigers roaming yeah. around. So we don't really need an overactive amygdala all the time. So fear jumps to the front of the line because it's an evolutionary protective mechanism and it gets prioritized over joy. So how do we learn to understand our own unconscious brain? Well, one of the things is to hypothesize about it. Um, so I think there are many ways. I think one is cognitive. The other is psychodynamic, which and I'll go give you examples of each. And the third is probably spiritual techniques. So uh, if we start with cognitive, uh, one of the things people often don't realize is that when they're not making enough money or there's no progress at work or their relationships are not working out or something is just not working and they, they can't think straight or their mind's all over the place. If we remember that unconsciously the thinking brain is always being blasted by the anxiety brain, you can try out a little exercise that I ask people to try out. It's, a, it's defined by the mnemonic circa, which, where the C stands for chunking, the, which is break the situation, the anxiety situation down into little pieces. So let's take an, an actual example. So let's say people are wondering, when am I going to go back to work? Like, when is this lockdown going to end? When is the pandemic going to end? Like, how do I deal with this? It's like, well, what am I, instead of thinking, I don't know if there's this big future and I don't know when it is, what am I going to be doing in the next month? And then in the next two months, by breaking it down, the amygdala starts to calm down. You may not be thinking to yourself, I'm that anxious about it. But one way you get to know the unconscious, is you try out circa where you chunk, I is ignore mental chatter, which is mindfulness, which is, re relates to the spiritual technique where you place your attention on your breath and you allow whatever thoughts are going on just to, just to you know, wander, you allow your mind to wander. And by doing this, you actually change your brain and decrease amygdala activation. In fact, Elizabeth Blackburn and her colleagues, she got a Nobel Prize. Uh, she, she found in some preliminary studies that mindfulness can change your genes as well. At the end of your genes are these telomeres, these caps, and the caps get shorter and shorter as you age, and mindfulness can delay this process. So, so ignoring mental chatter is an important way to get to know your unconscious. Then the R is reality check. Sort of say to your brain, okay, like I'm alive now. What's the reality? The reality is that I don't know, but nobody knows. Like I'm not the only one in the dark. So why don't we just recognize what's reality? Why don't we recognize that, that this is all going to end at some point? Like, do, do I think this pandemic's going to go on for 25 years? Probably not. It would be very unusual if it did because most pandemics don't go on for that long. So, so you put a timeline on that and then your brain stops getting so freaked out. Then there's control check. And control check is what can I not control and what can I control? Because so many people are like, oh my God, I'm so worried about the election. I'm so worried about this conflict. I'm so worried about the pandemic. I'm worried about my relationship. I'm worried about everything. <laughs> and it's sort of like, if you say that, it, that's fine. But, you know, are you going to control the election? Well, maybe by voting. Okay. If you, are you gonna, do you want to be an activist? Maybe, maybe not. If you're not, you're worrying about it for nothing. And, you know, I'm worried about the stock market. It's like, I get it. What are you going to be doing to the stock market? So the moment you say, identify, the, the, the trick here is to identify one thing you're trying to control that you should let go of and then let go of it. And then, and then the, the last A is attention shift. 
how can I place my mind on the solution to this? So if you're worried about the pandemic, by testing out, by chunking things, by building mindfulness into your day-to-day existence, by setting a time limit on when when this is going to end, by letting go of what you can't control and focusing on the solution, you can see whether maybe you feel better. Because if you do feel better, then it will give you a sense that, you know, maybe you didn't think you were that worried, but just going through the motions of that made you feel less worried. So that's one way to get to know your unconscious. I think it requires much more than that. Certainly in my practice and when I coach executives and when I work with people, I, you know, the reality is that existential anxiety is is a big deal. and, And existential anxiety is a fear of death, a fear of loneliness, and a fear of loss of meaning and purpose. So one way to get to know this is to start to talk about these fears to friends, but talk about them not in the sense that you're you're victimized by by these ideas because that'll just make you feel powerless. Talk about them in the sense of like, well, okay, like why am I fearing death? Like it's probably gonna happen. So my anticipation is based on some kind of strange hope that it's not gonna happen. Certainly there are people who believe it doesn't have to happen. The Immortality Institute, for example, Martine Rothblatt and her colleagues started this, and they just believe that the human body is software and that to deal with software, you just have to replace the parts. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think that when you, when you look at this fear of uh, loneliness, fear of death, you know, I mean, I think everyone's afraid at some level of being alone. Um, but I, what I actually think we're afraid of is how connected we are. I, I often think that the chaos we're finding ourselves in globally right now is not so much a local phenomenon of what's happening in the UK and what's happening in the US and what's happening in Hong Kong. But I think that the internet was basically like a mass consciousness orgy of like 4.57 billion people. <laughs> it is overwhelming. And, and I think it's just too much intimacy. It's like, imagine 4.57 billion people getting married. Like it's sort of like, I mean, two people can't manage in one house. Suddenly you have 4.57 billion people. It's a lot of chaos. And so I think in an attempt, I think it's been a very, consciousness needs to catch up with what the internet has afforded us. So getting into conversations like that, I think can put you in touch with the unconscious. I also think that meditation and lots of forms of meditation, mindfulness, transcendental meditation, loving kindness meditation, all of these things have been shown to actually help you connect with the unconscious and activate this default mode network, for example, which puts you in the unconscious. One of my most recent endeavors is I co-founded and I'm a chief medical officer of a virtual reality company right now called Roulet. And virtual reality is an amazing way to tap into your unconscious because we've designed images based on the brain circuitry and anxiety to help people calm their bodies down or calm their minds down or develop a sense of possibility. So I think cognitive things like circa, conversations around meaning and purpose, loneliness, um, and fear of death, and then practices like mindfulness or virtual reality are all ways that can, are all things that can put you in touch with the unconscious. So would you say then, taking all of this into consideration, that fear is actually the main driver of most of our problems? It's whether that be fear of being successful or fear of not being successful, fear of love or fear of not having love, as we said, fear of death. 
fear of not being included or being judged by other people. There's there's so much fear in our lives. And because of that fear, I believe that we actually are never really fully present. Yes, I think fear is a big driver. You know, I, is it the only driver? No, I mean, there are probably other drivers. I, to a certain extent, fear can be helpful, right? If you're afraid, if you have a task to finish, fear can drive you to finish that task. Or if there's, you're walking in a dangerous alley, it's probably a good idea to have fear. In fact, sociopaths don't have as, as sensitive an emotional system so because they just don't fear a lot of things. So it's, we want some amount of fear to be able to operate appropriately in the world. But when fear gets into this burnout zone or the worry zone or the panic zone, it really starts to not only drive our processes, but as you can see with this global pandemic, it's contagious. Like everybody, fear spreads. And we have mirror neuron systems in our brains that actually mirror other people's emotions. So fear is a driver of, I think, a lot of the negative feelings that, that people feel. And and learning to come to terms with that through methods like circa or meditation or even certain kinds of self-acceptance. You know, so many people, I mean, the things that people are afraid of are amazing. There's somebody I work with who is like an absolutely you know, drop-dead gorgeous, beautiful woman who is a, you know, she's in a happy marriage. She is working incredibly well. She's very smart. She's literally a size zero and when she goes to parties, she's worried that she might not be thin enough. I, so, I know. I've heard it so many you know, times, though. So many people have that. So it's sort of like, you know, our fears are more about our self-esteem and the way we navigate the world. And also, I think, what we expect from ourselves. Like, you know, like a lot of people will, like what I've learned over time, I think, is that I, I want to be good at what I do and I, I want to, you know, not make mistakes, but it, I've just made so many mistakes and I made a fool of myself so many times in the world. Like I, at some point you begin to understand that this is your journey, that, you know, if you have too much to drink in a particular night and you do stuff that you regret and the next day you're like, Oh my God, I just want to like, I want to forget everything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Curl up into a pool and never see anyone again. Right. Which is why like I specifically surround myself with friends who just, act like the night before didn't happen. Like they're, everyone's just like, you know, that's, it's an altered state of consciousness in which you're exploring some other form of recreation that you can put behind you. So I, you know, I, I think fear, but fear does drive us. I think the fear that we're not enough for so many people or this kind of meaninglessness that so many people feel. And I actually think that that's in large part because the logical brain, it doesn't offer us the tastiest parts of the of the dish of life you know it's often when you're often a hike wandering when you suddenly your mind goes suddenly you just notice the sunset or when you're hanging out with someone or when you're present as you said fear takes you away from the present and when you are fully present there is an amazing ability to savor not just the moment but a lot of what's going on around you and i, I think that this is what most people are looking for. I, I think we're looking for the little delicious tastes of life and not just the logic of it. Oh, what work do I want to do? How much money do I want to make? What's the right thing to do tomorrow? We want these subtleties. You know, these are these are called qualia. And Antonio Damasio wrote a beautiful book, um, which was called The Feeling of, of What Happens. And in it, he described the fact that 
we have a large neural network that supports these subtleties in life. And, and so I, I do think that if it's very easy because the amygdala is so demanding in a certain way and it directs attention and attention gets fixed on things, it's very easy to just let your life be consumed by fear. Like when sometimes people will say, oh, come on, you know, just be real. This is a terrible world. And I feel like, like I think reality is overrated. Like what, be real for what? Like I have, if you have 10 units of attention, why wouldn't you spend like two to three units trying to understand what's going on in reality and then seven units architecting a future for yourself based on a possibility that you want to be committed to. So it's about changing our relationship with fear and using it as a driver for possibility. Absolutely. I, I, I think that I think it's impossible. I, I often think that the signals of fear can be transduced into more meaningful things. Kierkegaard uh, said something very meaningful to me. He said anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. And what he said was that as, as human beings, we often feel like we want to be free. Everyone's like, oh yeah, I want to be free. I love being free. But, but the truth is we're afraid of freedom because freedom feels like we don't have gravity. We have nothing to pull us down. And so we build all these balls and chains into our lives because we don't want to be gravity-less. So I, I would say that one of the things to face, one of the ways you can transduce the signals of fear into something more meaningful is to say, why does being free frighten me? You know, why does, yeah, and you see this in little bits and pieces, right? So when people are questioning their relationships or if they're saying, uh, like I had a friend once who said something to me that was, I, I was immediately alarmed by it, but she said, you know, I, I'm just thinking, I don't know if I have like a regular future ahead of me. And I said, why? She said, because I, can't, I only like sociopathic men. Like I, like I, I, they're exciting. They're great to be with. Like, like nice men are fine to be friends with, but I'm just never going to feel romantically about them. Like I think I have to just commit. My, I'm just going to be a serial monogamous who only falls in love with sociopathic men, then becomes infuriated by their betrayal, and then moves on to the next person. Because at least then I feel like I'm attracted to somebody. Because like good guys don't interest me. And I was like, well, what? I said, well, what are you afraid of with good guys? Like, what's, she said, I'm not afraid. This is boring. Like, and so I think what she did was she liberated herself to a level of thought where she was like, wow, now all of a sudden I'm free to say that. And there's so many things. If we really take a look at the way our lives are constructed, there are so many ways in which we are not ourselves. And I think that that fear often has to do with the fact that we have these shadows about ourselves that are lurking within ourselves all the time. And we're like, you know, we put on a brave face, we have a very sort of, you know, clear, uncomplicated image. But we know deep down that every human being has the 100 billion neurons and 100 trillion neural circuits. It's kind of hard to live with such a mess of wiring. Exactly. And I often think that in working situations, I'm a very emotional person and very sensitive. And, you know, in some companies, it's kind of don't show emotion, be a machine. And that's hard. You're spending the majority of your years, you know, suppressing actually a lot of your emotion. And that's going to build up over time. Obviously, I do sometimes think, as we said before, anxiety is a positive. You know, if I'm about to 
do a presentation or do something that needs a lot of care. I need that driver. Because if I didn't care, I might not put the effort into work. So I think it can be a positive driver, but I guess it's about, again, going back to understanding your relationship with it. Absolutely. And I, I, I actually think, so another book that Tony Damasio wrote that I really liked, uh, it was called Descartes' Error. And in it, he pointed out that Descartes had made a mistake by saying, I think, therefore I am. Because neurally, the thinking brain is very intricately connected with the feeling brain. And to say, be a machine, don't be emotional, is like asking people to not be who they are. Mm -hmm. And certainly, you know, women often have access to emotions that drive their choices. So to say to a woman, I want you to come work, I want you to operate at a very high level, but I want you to cut off the circuitry that actually is your power. It's, it's, a, it's, 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 not a, it's not a useful way to operate. And even if you look at great thinkers, right? It's not like, like look at a movie or a representation of Albert Einstein talking about E equals MC squared. It's not like he didn't have any, he wasn't like, well, E equals MC squared. So <laughs> I thought that was kind of, you know, he goes, and so energy and the mass and you feel, it's like all this emotion. It's that even, you know, even physics and mathematics, everything has the potential to be enhanced by emotion. I think it's for us to figure out when these emotions are constructive and when they're destructive. But I also think, you know, there's a, there's a very interesting study by Glenn Sachs looking at entropy, which is the degree of disorder in the brain. And because we have these 100 billion neurons, our brains are operating in all these different, like a lot of circuits are turned on all the time. Now, in, you know, in the tabloids, people say things like, well, you know, don't, we'll just, you know, simplify, do one thing. But we're not that simple as human beings. You know, like you're, you're talking to me, you're probably thinking about your life. You're probably aware of who's around you. You're probably thinking about what you're doing tomorrow. I mean, there's all kinds of things that your brain is handling at any one point in time. And what Glenn Sachs found was that entropy correlates with intelligence. That actually, the more circuits you have turned on at any one point in time, the more intelligently you can make decisions. So I think constructive and destructive doesn't always work separately. If I was just talking to somebody about innovation the other day, we were sort of getting real about it. And I, and I said, you know, the thing about many great innovators is that they, they took chances that frighten other people. Like, you know, a lot of rock stars who were amazing at composition, for example, were, became addicts and died or killed themselves. Or, you know, Einstein's affairs. Or, 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 and they say, well, you know, it's not really necessary. There are innovative people who don't have to be sort of, you know, that crazy. But I, I think for all of us, for every human being, there's a, a, a way that you want to be going about living your life. And I think there's a commitment that you have to make. Uh, I call this existential confidence. It's something I've been working on with um, a, a colleague, Jim Selman, where we actually believe that the answer to all this anxiety is not necessarily just cognitive or, or the things I've talked about already, but it's the commitment to a possibility that does not yet exist in reality based on the fact that you believe that you can deliver on this, regardless of what you've delivered on in the past. And in this sense, you are just fully, as much yourself as you can be, and you encourage that in others as well. But when you have existential confidence, when you, when you realize that you can be committed to a possibility, that you can spend time in that possibility, that possibility drives you. 
And so I think very few of us spend time architecting our futures. We spend time reacting to reality. And as a result, we lose the sense of agency, a sense of intrinsic motivation. And self-determination theory would teach us that there are three factors that can, that can distract you from anxiety, that can really give you this intrinsic motivation. Uh, and, and what they are is competence, which is you, know, you ask yourself, what do I want to be good at? Autonomy, which is to what extent is my life self-determined? Like, I've got this job. I hate it. I don't want to do it. I want to leave it. Like, and then it's like, oh, but the job pays you so much money. It's like, oh, okay, but it's not me. Well, then how am I going to stay at that job? Well, what are you going to do? Well, you know, don't be so flighty. So I'd say, well, it's my life. I've got this life to live. Why don't I just live in this life and just try to make it as, as, you know, as much me as possible? So someone knocks at the door. So I'm just going to say, but the question is, the, the if question you need to is, answer it, go for it. Well, I'll see if they just leave it at the door. And if they don't, I'll, I'll, I'll go, I'll go for it. <laughs> Please, if you uh, need to, go yeah. for it. Uh, so yeah, I was saying the three factors for intrinsic motivation. One is, um, is, is competence. How, what do I want to be good at? The second is autonomy. To what, to what extent is my life self-determined? And the third is social relations. And social relations is about who do I want to be connected with? These three factors can really boost your intrinsic motivation. And I guess also with neuroplasticity, if we're constantly thinking on the negative side and this is the life that I've got and I'm going to keep living in this way, we have to shift our perspective, thinking more in positive ways, but actually about possibility and setting intentions and setting goals for yourself to work towards and actually manifesting and creating a life that you want. Yes, I mean, that's the beauty of neuroplasticity, the fact that we now know that the brain can change and that we can change it. You know, I, I don't think everything we do can be just deliberately changed, like the way that people sometimes talk about it. Like, oh, just do circle, your anxiety will go away. <laughs> just do these five things I'm telling you, it'll go away. Like, I don't think it works quite like that. But these are frameworks. I always say to people, the frameworks are only as good as the extent to which you engage yourself. You know, like I can sense when I'm talking to you that there's a kind of... Um, wanting to get real in life. I think that you're, that you're committed to that. And I think the more you're involved in getting real and being yourself, and we can't all do that immediately. You know, like you, you let the world know who you are little by little. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, I, I'm, I'm eccentric in many ways. So one of the ways in which I'm eccentric is I, I usually dress eccentrically. And so when I meet people publicly, they very, you know, when I was when I was at Harvard, people would walk right past me when they would when they meet a Harvard professor because they would be like, "Who's this person wearing like this weird jacket with all this jewelry?" And like, uh, but I felt like you know I've got a like, when I first took a chance at being myself that way, I was like, "Well, this is ridiculous." Like during the week, I dress one way, and then on the weekends, I'm dressing another way. You know, like I like a certain amount of pomp and glory, like. Sometimes it's nice to get dressed up in a suit and go out to a formal restaurant. But in terms of being yourself, it's not such a big thing to wear jewelry if you feel like wearing it. Like it's really, and, and I found that when I did that, corporations found it acceptable. People found it acceptable. Sometimes, you know, people, you can't please everyone. So some people are going to be rubbed the wrong way. But you have to ask yourself, I think it was Proust who said it comes 
it comes too soon, the, the time when you realize that there's not much left to live for. And I think the sooner we can learn to live for ourselves, the, more, the, more, the happier we will be and the more we'll be able to deliver to other people as well. I agree, and, and not creating these narratives in our head before we actually try things out. Um, I want to talk about your new book. I love the idea of creating time to unfocus. You're speaking to someone who, I'm better now, but I'm a big daydreamer, and I have written many to-do lists that have never been completed, and I'm just very interested to understand the approach of the book. So I, you know, I was inspired by a lot of different things. So when I first got to Harvard, my residency, you know, I was, I was an immigrant from South Africa. I wanted to prove myself. I wanted to make, so I was like, sort of like, I worked really hard. Like I, I went to the rewards working with patients the whole time. I, I went to every didactic. And so at the end of the first, you know, the first assessment period, I was like, I totally rocked this. Like people are going to be, I'm going to get a great assessment. And so my supervisor was like, well, you know, in terms of knowledge, you've definitely acquired more knowledge than anyone else in your class. And, but, but we're worried about you. And I was like, what are you worried about me for? And, and he goes, well, you never really take any time off. Like, like you, and you go to 100% of your didactics. It shows no discernment. Like, we're not here to train automatons. We're here to help you connect with what your greatest assets are. And so... Whereas your colleagues are going to Walden Pond for a quick swim and they miss a class or they sit on a bench. We don't see you sitting in park benches. Why, why don't you do this? And I, I'd had an earlier experience at medical school where I, in one year I did particularly badly for, for, for the standards that I wanted. And I was like, and, and by just building in this unfocused time, I suddenly started to do much better. And so I, I learned over time personally, that building an unfocused time was important. And certainly from my work with executives and corporations, um, you know, as I said, I've learned that cognitive rhythm, which is going from focus to unfocus, is much more important than simply focusing all the time. Most people live their days with focus, 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 fatigue, and then they're out. But you, know, you, wouldn't, drive a, you wouldn't drive cross country without doing this. So why wouldn't you go you know, focus, unfocus, to refuel, focus, unfocused so that when it's three o'clock, you still have a brain that's alert and alive and, and feels good. So I wrote this book to explain how you can access the default mode network to productively unfocus. And what I suggest is that you take time off, maybe like 15, 20 minutes at lunch or after lunch, middle of the afternoon or the end of the day, several times a day, uh, to to learn how to unfocus. And there are a bunch of different ways you can do this. So for example, napping, five to 15 minutes of napping can give you one to three hours of clarity. So why would you pull yourself through something and, and not just nap? I can this see you. This music, you're, you're literally, I'm doing yeah. a dance. For all those people that tells me I'm a moron for having a nap in the middle of the day, I love right. naps. So thank you very much for this. I've got Harvard proof here telling yeah. me. <laughs> so I think it's really... You know, napping's great. I think doodling, uh, juries are, there was actually a study by Jackie Andrade that showed that uh, doodling improves memory by 29%. But a more recent physical stu- doodling, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, so just like if you're talking to someone and you're just sort of playing and scribbling. Yeah. So 
but a recent study showed that doodling per se is not necessarily that helpful. It's actually, it's actually uh, doodling in a way that's relevant to the subject at hand. So I think that's a little bit, we're not sure about that. Then there's, uh, so it's snapping, doodling, uh, positive constructive daydreaming is something that was studied by Jerome Singer. And positive constructive daydreaming was, uh, is, is essentially what he said was, it's not good to just daydream about last night's indiscretions. It's not good to daydream about, um, it's not good to daydream about just sitting at your desk looking out. But it is helpful to daydream if you do the following things. First, you set aside time. Second, you do something low maintenance, like walking or gardening or knitting. Uh, and then you just let your mind go and you think of something like uh, you know, lying on a yacht or being on the beach. And, and doing this actually turns on your default, mode net, your default mode network and it allows you to, to become more creative and also to become more productive. So these ways, napping, doodling, positive, constructive, daydreaming, there's one of my favorites is psychological Halloweenism, um, which is uh, something that's, particularly helpful. Psychological Halloweenism uh, is based on a study that showed that if you want to become more creative, rather than um, rather than, than just being yourself all the time, you take on the identity of another person. So in this study, they took two stereotypes. One was of an eccentric poet, and the other was of a uh, librarian, a rigid librarian. And what they found was that if you embodied the, the personality of an eccentric poet, you know, if you were languishing on your own, sort of thinking about a beautiful day. If you just took on the whole personality and we gave you a creative problem, you were much more likely to solve that problem than if you took on the identity of a rigid librarian. And even if the same people switched roles, they were not able to do this if they became the rigid librarian. So we often think that we're stuck in ourselves. And I think part of it is that we keep on restricting ourselves to one kind of identity. But, you know, no matter what your creativity is, like not everyone's going to be eccentric or want to wear jewelry, but maybe your creativity is gardening. Maybe your creativity is cooking. Maybe your creativity is, you know, learning how to redo your room. But taking on the identity of a creative person can, can change your brain and make you think in very different ways. That's amazing. That's so interesting. And also, so are you saying that it's actually taking time out in your week or every day to actually let creativity flow? Because if we're being obsessive and if we're overthinking about the task at hand, we're giving the obsession the attention and not actually letting our true creativity come to the forefront. I um, When I first kind of started to make a career change, I was obsessing about the small details of what's your company called, what's all this kind of stuff and not really getting anywhere. And then I went on a Vipassana silent retreat for 10 days. And, you know, day four, just boom, all this stuff's coming up. And I'm having, I know it's kind of cheating, you're not meant to write anything, but I had to go upstairs and and write everything down because I actually felt like I was in this flow state where I felt a lot more rigid before, maybe a bit like the librarian. So I can totally see that taking time out to actually be creative and connect with yourself and your intentions is such a positive thing. It really is. And I think there's so many examples of this, right? Even in the business literature. So for example, um, 
you know, Albert Einstein, when he talked about um, how he discovered the theory of relativity, he said it was a musical perception. It, it wasn't like he was just logical. He became logical about it afterwards, but it occurred to him. It was an insight. Steve Jobs, when he was stuck about what to do, went on this retreat to, to meditation thing in India, came back and started Apple. When Mark Zuckerberg was stuck about this, he sought Steve Jobs' help. And he said, yeah, it's not. don't think more, think less. Like Go go on this retreat, let your mind go, and you'll find something different. You know, Carrie Banks-Mullis, who discovered a way of making synthetic DNA. You know, people, people in his lab didn't like him. They were all rigid scientists who followed a protocol. He was driving from Berkeley to Mendocino. His, his girlfriend was in his car next to him. She was asleep. They had had some wine. They were going up the Scurvy Road. He suddenly stopped by, suddenly had this awareness, started scribbling something down, went to their little house, figured it out. There are a lot of great discoveries that happen. I think people can relate to this when they realize that they had these realizations in the shower or on a Vipassana retreat, for example. Would you say that the area of our brain, I guess the conscious mind, the, the level that's 5% that is our linear way of thinking that is great for execution in life of our ideas... Would you say that that is kind of the part of our mind that we attach to the most when we're trying to complete tasks, but we need to calm that to let the creativity flow? So is the creativity actually coming from a more unconscious part of our brain? Yes, I I believe that. So the default mode network, one of its functions, so the way I'd like to describe this, I say that when you're thinking logically, it's like, you're activating your, you're picking up the parts of your identity that you might with a fork, like your LinkedIn profile. You know, if you look at your LinkedIn profile, people don't get a sense of the, the color in your life. But so metaphorically, that's like picking up your identity with a fork. When you activate this unconscious brain, the default mode network, metaphorically, other utensils come to the fore. Suddenly you can taste the delicious melange of flavors of your identity. You can use these chopsticks to make connections across different parts of your brain. You can use these. So the, what relates to what you said specifically is you can use this, a toothpick or a, or, a, or a marrow spoon to go into the nooks and crannies of your brain to activate memories that the logical brain would never find. So the unconscious brain is also a way of searching for information that logic cannot find. And I think when we're stuck, we tend to go to logic. But what, all that the logic does is it delivers more of the same. If you want a new insight and you want a shift in your life, you really need to be able to move swiftly in cognitive rhythm between the unconscious brain and the conscious brain. I, I believe that we are fundamentally, uh, we have the capacity for great inspiration and we have the capacity for, for you know, an incredibly sort of wondrous mind that grows wildly and that the logical brain we've inherited, uh, I think, so that we can deliver this and communicate with other people. But I don't think it's the source of greatness. I think the source of greatness uh, is in, lies in this unconscious and in the dynamic interplay between the conscious and unconscious brain. And the wisdom is in the unconscious. I really believe that. Also, I just want to ask you about multitasking. So I know that yeah. that's in your new book too. So what's the deal with multitasking? Well, I, there have been a lot of studies that show that multitasking causes a decrement of attention and, and your poorer execution. 
But there are a group of people who are called supertaskers. And in this group of people, the more you give them, the better they do up to a certain point. So the story about multitasking is that it can generally be harmful, but there are many ways in which it can, it, it can be harmless and also help you. So I like, for example, to fluently multitask, which, which doesn't always mean, it, multitasking could be doing two things at exactly the same time. That's, that's rare. I mean, that's hard to do, to sort of concentrate. You know, but can you eat and talk? Yeah. Like I, in fact, in my startup, one of the things I like to do is I like to have creative periods hanging out with the CEO because we're friends. And we have this incredibly exploratory conversation. The next day I get operational. So I'm exploring ideas at the same time that I'm eating or drinking. That's multitasking and it helps. Uh, but I think that multitasking in the sense of doing multiple projects in a period of time, as long as they're all self-connected, I think can be super inspiring. Like one of the things I do love about my life right now is, I mean, the things I hate about my life as well, but one of the things I, I love about my life is I, I love the fact that I've, I'm at a point in my life where I'm a musician, so I can write music. I can, I write music, I design things, I work in technology, I work in human psychology. I, I'm doing so many different things and I feel like they all feed one another. And, and so if somebody said to me, well, why don't you focus and do one thing? In fact, I had an investor say that to me once. And I, I'm pretty productive even though I do these different things, because they do actually accelerate things. And I, I, I said to the investor, I, I, don't, I understand that's what, the way you want to live your life, but I don't want to be you. I think I, I want to be me and I want to know if you want to support how I am, because I feel like there's plenty of evidence of my productivity. And the way I've been productive is by allowing myself to acknowledge the many things I like. And I think so many people are like that. I don't think it's like this rare Renaissance person I think people are just meant to believe that they exist. They should exist in boxes. It's something we buy. I don't think people are like that fundamentally. When I hang out with people, even people I don't know, people at bars, I think I see so many different flavors of their personalities and so many different things they could be. Uh, so it's not just as a psychotherapist or as a coach, but I think even socially, uh, people, I, I think, are, are suffering because of these straitjackets that they've had to put themselves in by creating these very defined identities that prevent them from being who they are. And I believe that, you know, life is for us to explore and to learn and to grow. And, you know, just because maybe someone decided at 25 they wanted to be a lawyer, who cares at 60 if they decide that actually... They want to be, I don't know, a rock star or a painter or a carpenter. It, I think there's so much judgment. And as you said, we have to be put into these certain boxes. That person's like that. That's in that category over there. Also, who cares? Explore, like love, learn and just go for it. But I think, I guess it's the fear side of things of, of security and, and judgment. But I guess over time, if you make these little steps and break out of your comfort zone, you realize actually it's not so much of a scary place and you probably feel more liberated for doing it. Absolutely. I mean, I, 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 I very much believe in the liberal arts approach to life, which is sort of you get, you feed your intelligence from multiple different directions. And Linda Grattan, who's a friend of mine um, at London Business School, actually wrote a book 
uh, called The Hundred Year Life, in which she, I think, highlighted the fact that we're all living much longer. You don't really retire at 60 anymore. You know, you, but if you keep yourself healthy, you can do a lot of different things in this, in this lifetime. And so I've been just so, like recently I met someone who was a bubbleologist. And I was like, what? And, and they were like, like he spends his time blowing bubbles. I've I was never like, heard that before. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, he's actually just outside of London. He was like, he, he's a bubbleologist. He has a bubbleosophy. He's thinking about putting virtual reality cameras into bubbles so he can watch the different formations. He's blowing bubbles at great shows. I mean... You know, he and I said, well, what drew you to bubbles? He said, I, I always liked blowing bubbles. I thought it was really great. And so he's made a career of it. You know, it's, it, it just, it's interesting. If you're open to something, you'll, you'll figure out a way to make it fit in the world rather than making the world make you fit into its boxes. I completely agree. So my last question for you is, what advice would you give to someone who's never thought to question this way of thinking, who's never, he never thinks about having, you know, this po- this limitless possibility in their life, and who's never maybe thought to explore their unconscious, what advice would you give them to act on now? I would say that as we make it through life, the most important thing is the psychological center of gravity. You know, in the same way that you can't walk if you don't have a center of gravity, you can't really think and be if you don't have the psychological center of gravity. And in the brain, this largely resides in this cognitive rhythm, the interchange between the logical brain and the default mode network. In fact, the self-circuit is the default mode network codes for self-awareness, self-regulation, and self-transcendence. So my advice would be, rather than being stuck in your logical brain, start by building these 20-minute periods in the, whenever you think you, your, your brain doesn't have any fuel, so a little after lunch, a little of the afternoon or the evening, do this for a month and see if it makes a difference to the way you feel. That would be number one. Number two would be look up meditations. Look at transcendental meditation. Go to a Vipassana retreat. You know, go look up loving kindness meditation. See what that can do for you. I think number three, think about taking up a hobby so that you can feed your life from a completely different perspective. I think number four would be engage much more in these kinds of conversations around meaning and purpose. Um, and, and five, challenge yourself to ask yourself, if I were to just for 10 minutes take myself out of this world of reality and architect my life from possibility, what might that possibility be? And what possibility can I be committed to? And I think once you can develop a commitment to that possibility, it can guide you and steer you and activate the intrinsic motivation that we talked about. Amazing. Thank you so much. You are so great. And I'm so chuffed that we were able to speak today. Thank you so much for taking the time. There's lots of takeaways from this that I'm sure will be able to help people so much. So thank you. Sure. Thank you very much. It was really lovely to talk to you.